Support for this podcast comes from W.W. Norton, publisher of Ghost Road, Beyond the Driverless Car by Anthony M. Townsend. For decades, we have dreamt of building an automobile that can drive itself. But as that dream of autonomy draws close, we are discovering that the driverless car is a red herring. When self-driving technology infects buses, bikes, delivery vans, and even buildings, a wild, woollier future awaits. Ghost Road, available wherever books are sold. Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. I've been covering Silicon Valley now for many years, and uh, at least once a month, you read stories about the end of what people call the Wild West of the web, that suddenly the the excesses, the anarchy of Silicon Valley is getting reined in and they're becoming conventional, normalized like the rest of us. Maybe, however, the year 2020, when everything seems to be dramatically changing, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, the end or the beginning of a new kind of capitalism, final crisis of democracy, maybe finally we're at the end of the wild, wild web Um Certainly, uh, we are, according to the very distinguished New York Times tech writer, Kevin Ruse. Kevin, you just wrote goodbye to the wild, wild web. Are we really at this point now? Is 2020 fundamentally changing the nature of internet publishing? I think it is. Um, and there are a couple of reasons I think that. I mean, I, I first had the idea for this column um, on, I guess, Monday of this week. And it was a very strange day in my world of sort of internet culture and governance because all of a sudden, all of these platforms did the things that people like me had been asking them to do for years. Um, people like journalists and researchers had been saying, you have to deal with hate speech, you have to deal with extremism, you have to sort of take more responsibility for the content on your platforms. And within a 48-hour period, you saw Reddit, um, which used to be kind of the, the most uh, toxic, you know, internet uh, haven. They banned thousands of forums for hate speech and changed their hate speech policies. Um, Twitch, the game streaming platform um, owned by Amazon, they suspended President Trump's account for hateful conduct. YouTube got rid of, uh, I think, six sort of white supremacists who had built up big profiles there, including David Duke, the former KKK leader, um, and Stefan Molyneux, who's a very popular YouTube, uh, sort of far-right YouTuber. Um, and Facebook, you know, also has been dealing with this advertiser boycott and facing more pressure. And they took down the so-called Boogaloo movement. Uh, which is sort of a network of 
uh, I don't know, you, you characterize them as far right or anti-government, but they've been increasingly violent. Um, and so all of that, like t- happening in a, basically a day or two of each other, it just felt like the end of an era. The end of an era when, where not necessarily where bad stuff, you know, all of a sudden the internet is only good stuff and only, you know, reasonable political opinions and only nonviolent, you know, resistance. There's still all obviously a ton of bad stuff on social media. I think the thing that is changing is the platform's ability to sort of neglect their responsibilities. I think that now, you know, the the game is up. Everyone knows that these platforms can stop this kind of content and that they need to. And I don't think anyone's going to let them off the hook for their failures to police their own platforms. And so that's, I think, the, the change is not that we waved a wand and got rid of everything bad on the internet, but that we as citizens and you know, regulators and, and users and advertisers are now holding these companies accountable in a new way. Well, you mentioned uh, f- four four different audiences or, or, or four players in the game: um, users, uh, advertisers, uh, government, and the uh, the people who who run these platforms themselves. Where is the real power coming from? Is it the advertising boycott? We're certainly seeing it with Facebook, or is it the the, the the looming threat of significant regulation of these platforms that's coming now from both political parties in DC. I think there's two points of real leverage here. I mean, obviously, I think public pressure and and you know has been a has been a source of leverage against these companies for a long time. You know, but I, I really think that they've sort of gotten numb to that kind of pressure. At least Facebook has. I think the points of leverage are, are one, um, the threat of regulation, which I think is real. And especially if, you know, there's a Joe Biden administration in 2021, we could really see some movement on that. Um, but I think the biggest source of regulation is actually, or the biggest source of accountability is actually something I didn't mention in that list, which is the rank and file employees of these companies. Mm. Um, you know, at Facebook, thousands of people participated in this sort of virtual walkout a few weeks ago over Mark Zuckerberg's decision to um, to take sort of a, a hands-off approach to President Trump and his threats of violence against protesters. Um, employees have also been agitating at Google and Amazon. And this is a real problem for these companies because if people don't want to work there, if they're not able to hire the best and the brightest computer science majors or to to get the the engineers that they need from the rest of you know the talent pool, if if they're sort of seen as a toxic place, um, that is a real business problem for them because these companies live and die on the quality of their talent, and that's true of Facebook, it's true of Amazon, it's true of Google, and I think that's the thing that that you know Mark Zuckerberg is. If I had to get inside his head, is probably worried about is that the you know the college senior from Stanford or Carnegie Mellon or MIT who wants to go work in tech may not want to work at Facebook. Yeah, we had Margaret O'Mara on the the show earlier this week, the author of The Code, who's a real expert, a historian on Silicon Valley, and she makes the same point about this generational shift. Do you see the same generational shift, Kevin, amongst entrepreneurs themselves? 
Um, are they are, are, are the are, are the 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 twenty somethings who are starting media or tech companies? Are they also repulsed by what's happened in the past? I think they are. Um, I mean, it's it's obviously you know I don't find it helpful to make broad generalities about generations, just because I, I think that you know no generation is a monolith, and everyone has. Every generation has people of all persuasions in it, but I I do think that the the entrepreneurs that are coming up now that are sort of you know the the people in their early twenties who are starting companies and entering Silicon Valley I do think they have a stronger sense of sort of moral obligation and um, you know I don't I don't know how to quantify that except to say that sort of qualitatively I hear from some of them. And, you know, I had one founder on the younger side tell me, um, you know, I would never sell my company to Facebook. Like, no matter how much money they offered me, if they offered me a billion dollars or $10 billion, they're the one company I would never sell to. Which to me, I mean, that that is one data point, obviously, but it speaks to this larger question of what is the moral responsibility of a founder? What is... What do these people want to spend their lives doing? And I think that that is something that's I've heard echoed from both founders and executives at these large companies is this sense that they're sort of now becoming aware that history will judge them for the decisions that they make now, um, that they will have to someday look back and explain to their kids or their grandkids or people reading U.S. history textbooks you know, why they did what they did. And so that I think is causing them to, to think about their, their decisions in a new way. Um, Kevin, you, you wrote a very powerful piece last month suggesting that while the, all these social media giants from, from Facebook, of course, to Instagram, uh, to, to Reddit, to all the others, support the idea of racial justice in theory, from a, perhaps from a marketing or PR point of view, their products, and I'm quoting here, here undermine that idea of racial justice. Given this generational unrest, and that's my term, I know you're slightly wary of, 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 of categorizing generations in such a monolithic way, but given the, the way in which younger people in Silicon Valley are responding um, to what's going on at the moment, do you see new products, new companies, new platforms with racial justice or acknowledgements of all the defects of previous platforms built in that will come along and challenge the Facebooks and Reddits of the world? I do. Um, I think that, you know, obviously there's some questions about antitrust and market power and whether it's possible for any social network to compete with Facebook and Instagram and, and the rest. Um, but I do, I do see some signs that the companies that are starting now have sort of learned, they've seen the mistakes of the companies that came before them. And, um, and, and I, I think that that, that, um, that can be a good thing and a bad thing. For example, TikTok is, is a very interesting sort of part of the social media market right now. And, and TikTok is Chinese-owned. And um, came out of this, you know, it's it's owned by ByteDance, which is the sort of largest startup in China, and they take a pretty aggressive approach to moderating content. Um, at first, they said we don't want any political content on TikTok, and so they would sort of downrank and hide, you know, content that was overtly political. 
And that could be good and bad. I mean, it's good in the sense that you, you don't have, you know, huge political uh, manipulation going on on the platform. It's bad because, you know, some of that speech, I would argue, you know, is, is, is good. I mean, some of that is speaking out against injustice. Some of that is, you know, calling, uh, you know, China out for human rights violations. Um, if that kind of stuff can't appear on our network, you do lose some ability to agitate for social change. Um, but I think that they saw what happened to Facebook and said, like, we don't want any part of that. What about Facebook itself, Kevin? Uh, we have to talk about it. You, your, your work, particularly on Twitter, I think does a wonderful job showing how, how much Facebook has become a platform for, for right-wing extremism and right-wing propaganda and racism and sexism and every other ism. Uh, is Facebook uh, unique in terms of this crisis? Or is it just uh, sort of an exaggerated version of what's happening across the platforms themselves? Um, I, I think Facebook is unique in many ways. Um, its size alone, it has you know something like 3 billion users. Is it 3 billion? Or I, I, I sort of lost count um, at a certain point. But a significant portion of the world's population is attached to some Facebook product. Um, they're the largest social network by far, um, Instagram is, you know, also huge and, and powerful. And so I think they rightly get a lot of the scrutiny and a lot of the attention. Um, and I do think there's a gap between the product that people at Facebook think they're building and the product that actually appears in the world and what kind of content it promotes and what kind of sort of, what kind of polarization and, and anger and hostility surfaces most frequently there. Um, but I do think there are other important social networks. I mean, I think YouTube, uh, I just made a, you know, an entire podcast series, um, right. ra rabbit hole at the New York times about largely YouTube and its effect on culture and politics. So I, I think, I think we have to look at all of these. Um, we can't isolate the problems, you know, in any one social network. But I, I do think Facebook is the biggest and therefore the most important. And does Zuckerberg get it? Or is he, it seems to me at least, to be either delusional or just profoundly dishonest? You know, I don't know. I, I, I have talked to Mark in the past. I don't pretend to know everything that goes through his head. Um, but judging from just what he said publicly and, and to his own employees, it sounds like, you know, this is a guy who understands that he, um, that he has a tremendous amount of power and that people are constantly asking him, you know, telling him, demanding of him to use that power in certain ways and that he really is going to be the person who decides on his own um, what to do. He, he does not want to be pressured into making decisions. He very much wants to feel like they're coming from him. And so, yeah, I think he, he resists a lot of the sort of attempts to twist his arm and, and sway him in certain directions. And, uh, and I think he can do that. I mean, he's, he's the majority, you know, controller of Facebook. He's the CEO. He started it. There's really not any accountability for him beyond you know his his own employees and his own legacy
One constituency, uh, Kevin, that you didn't mention were the investors, the VCs. Are they getting it too? We're having a lot of noise out of Silicon Valley about investing in African-American entrepreneurs and um, minority-owned uh, minority businesses. There's been an endless fight for the last few years about women in Silicon Valley. Are VCs recognizing that much of the wealth that they've, the ridiculous amount of money they've made over the last few years has been built on products that have really, uh, in many ways, corrupted American democracy and culture? Well, I, I don't know that I would go that far. I mean, I think that, you know, a handful of VCs made a killing on Facebook. Um, but largely, I mean, these these investors uh, are. Kevin, uh, let, let me, I mean, and I'm not putting words into your yeah, mouth, yeah. but uh, Uber is another example. Many of these companies, which are clearly problematic sure. in, in many ways, uh, resulted in, in, in groups of people making huge fortunes, unimaginable fortunes for most of our audience. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, I share your um, general purview, and I also just want to sort of be very clear about who we're talking about and what we're talking about. So I think I would put something like Uber in a in a category, I mean, I think they have they have been destructive in many ways, but I, I don't think they you know swung elections or anything like that. So right. I, I would put Uber in, in a different category, and I think that category, the sort of like gig economy, what you would you know call the on some people call it the on demand economy. Um, I mean, that has really transformed the economy, um, the labor market. It's really transformed things like workplace protections. Um, there's been a lot of agitation. Uh, recently among drivers and delivery people who said, you know, we're not adequately supported, we're not getting paid enough, um, our companies are not transparent with us. And so I think that's sort of the next big labor movement we'll see is, is from those people. And I, I do think the investors, um, right, they, they have, they're sort of one step removed from all of the sort of strategic decisions that these companies make. And I think, you know, they would say our job is to make money for our investors. We have a fiduciary responsibility um, to return to our investors more money than they give us. And that's our job. And, and you know, we'll do whatever we can do to do that within the, the rules of law and, and sort of the boundaries of, of our own consciences. Um, that's That's what our job is. There'll be some people listening to this, or actually, hopefully, many people listening to this, Kevin, ordinary users who, who, who share our concern about the impact of technology on democracy, on capitalism, on equality, on justice, on racism. And they'll be saying to themselves, well, what can I do? I don't have, uh, I don't have a, a successful podcast. I don't work for the New York Times. I don't have access to venture capitalists. I still need to connect to my friends and family and co-workers on Facebook. I still like Twitter. What advice would you give just to ordinary um, internet users who are uncomfortable with some of the direction of the internet, but at the same time rely on it for their livelihood and their entertainment? Well, first I would say I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling that conflict. I mean, I... I love the internet in many ways. I depend on it every day. I've made good friends. I've kept in touch with family members throughout this pandemic. Like it, it is, it is too broad a brush to say that all of this is bad and none of it is valuable. Um, and yet, I think we all have to examine our own relationship to these tools. And so that's, I think, the, the place I would start is 
just be mindful of the way that you are using technology. Um, I, I did about a year ago at this point, I did a, a 30 day phone detox um, where I, you know, went through this structured program mm. um, to sort of detach myself from my smartphone. Yeah, and, I remember that. You wrote about it. It was a very nice piece, actually. Yeah, and, and, and for me, it was just a personal exercise of, like, I have to... I, I felt like my brain had been colonized. Like, I was no longer in control of what I was paying attention to, what I was thinking about, what I was reading. It was like, I was I was, like being bombarded every day and I felt like my own agency had kind of gone missing. And so that was a really important month for me in terms of kind of resetting my awareness of, okay, now I'm picking up my phone. Now I'm clicking on a notification. I wonder why that notification was there. I wonder who's trying to manipulate me. I wonder what the other, you know, where this personalized recommendation came from and what the algorithm that's serving it to me is trying to get me to do. And I think just becoming aware of the forces that are being exerted on us every time we go online or pick up our phones, just that basic awareness is is a really important first step. I mean, the, the first step to sort of being able to navigate the internet in a way that is humane and and you know that enriches our lives is to understand that we are not just we are not totally in control of our online experience and that there are you know, hundreds, thousands of PhDs, of, you know, engineers, of machine learning specialists on the other side of our screens, whose job is to, in some ways, convince us or, or persuade us or coerce us into doing things that maybe we didn't set out to do. One other way, finally, Kevin, of, of restoring agency is picking up a book. There aren't those um, AI bots or experts behind the books. Nobody knows what we're reading, except perhaps the bookstore that we bought the book at. Uh, you're stuck in Oakland, or maybe not stuck in Oakland. You're in Oakland during the lockdown, just down the street from me in Berkeley. What are you reading um, in this in these weird times? Well, I I try to keep my sort of work reading and my personal reading separate because you know it can easily become all work reading. So I've I've read some books about technology recently, but, but the ones I want to highlight are actually not about technology at all. Um, I recently read um, a great book by Eric Larson called The Splendid and the Vile, um, which is about um, Winston Churchill during mm. the opening uh, years of, of World War II and the Blitz and, and the sort of rise of, uh, of Nazi Germany that was uh, very well done and, and very enjoyable, and, and I learned a lot from it. And then my friend Maria Konnikova um, wrote a book called The Biggest Bluff that just came out uh, a few days ago, and um, it's an amazing story. She was a, uh, a writer. She is a writer. She was a New Yorker writer, and she um, decided to become a poker player. She had never played poker before in her life. She didn't even know how many cards were in a deck, um, but she had a PhD in psychology and she decided that she was going to try to get as, as good as she could at professional poker. And I, I won't spoil the ending, but she probably has, uh, has succeeded more than any other writer I know um, in terms of getting becoming an expert in her subject. 
Um, she went from being a novice to a world-class poker player and the book that she wrote about it, which really is, is enjoyable, even if you're not particularly interested in poker. Um, it's one of the best things I've read in recent months. It's called The, the Biggest Bluff. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.